We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, September 20th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. Kyle Van Dyke. Dr. Van Dyke is a board-certified family physician who became involved in autism when his son was diagnosed in 2004. He has special interest in gastrointestinal issues, diet, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and mitochondrial dysfunction, and he helps children and consults with families at the Wisconsin Integrative Hyperbaric Center. Our topic today is hyperbaric oxygen therapy as a treatment option for children diagnosed with autism. Welcome, Dr. Van Dyke. Thank you, Terry. Dr. Van Dyke, let's start out with a question that I often pose to many guests. What do you think autism is? Well, I guess we all know the classic definitions of the decreased language, decreased social interaction, increased repetitive behaviors, but these are all just symptoms. It doesn't really tell us what autism actually is. I think those of us who have been working with autism for a while realize that there's more than just these plain neurologic symptoms. It's more of a systemic dysfunction going on. We've got GI disease going on. We've got immune dysfunction going on. And people have classically attributed this stuff to just a genetic problem, but we know that increased incidence of autism, that it can't be purely just genetics. So, again, I think most of us who are involved in this for a while now have realized that there's probably some genetic predisposition of the kids that have it, but then there's some environmental trigger that triggers this kind of multi-system dysfunction that we see when the children present with autism. Yes, very good. And you, know, you mentioned genetics, but you also mentioned the word neurological, and a lot of people think of genetics and psychological. What's the difference between neurological and psychological? Well, neurologic would just be related to you know, the brain, which is you know, in the end going to cause all psychological behaviors. Um, you know, in addition to all your your exposures and uh, you know psychology as well, but the you know the neurologic is going to be the brain and the nerve system and that. All right, and then you alluded to some other bodily systems. So, does that mean that other uh, other body systems, such as the gastrointestinal system, actually have a connection with the neurological system in the brain? Again, this is something that I didn't think when I first started uh, learning about autism, but just from my own experience over the years, I think it's uh, it's very, very uh, well described, and I think it's something that we see actually in other diseases as well. There's other diseases such as celiac disease, which is primarily a disorder of the gut, most people think, but it can actually affect every other body system as well, including the brain. 
Um, I think we certainly see this in autism. Many of the children that we see have lots of gastrointestinal symptoms, and when their gastrointestinal symptoms are worse, their behaviors are worse. So this is certainly connected in my mind. Okay. Well, let's look at some of the underlying physiological factors that are spoken about often uh, by people who are studying autism. First of all, let's just in general look at oxidative stress and what that is. Sure. Oxidative stress is basically the damage that's done to your body from these molecules called free radicals. Now, free radicals are very dangerous molecules, but they're everywhere. They're both in the environment, um, stuff like tobacco smoke, radiation are going to induce free radicals, but also internally, everyone's body is making free radicals all the time. It's just a byproduct of your body's normal energy production. Your body makes these free radicals, but then consequently, you will also make antioxidants to help balance and get rid of these free radicals. Now, the problem comes when you're either making too much of these free radicals or you're not making enough of these antioxidants. When this gets out of balance, then these free radicals start damaging tissues in the body. And this long-term damage is what we call oxidative stress. And this is a big factor in many, if not most, human diseases, including autism. Okay, so how specifically does this relate to autism? Well, we can tell from lab tests and from studies that there's increased oxidative stress in the tissues. You can look at various things like oxidative damage to the cell membranes. You can look at oxidative damage to DNA, oxidative damage to RNA, and children with autism will frequently have elevated levels of these uh, oxidative stress damage markers. Okay, so you alluded to objective laboratory testing that yields biomarkers, things that we can look at, byproducts of, of uh, bodily pro- processes. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So what kinds of biomarkers do we see in autism? Well, the biomarkers for oxidative stress, again, there's these markers that will look at oxidative damage to to the lipids, oxidative damage to DNA, and oxidative damage to RNA. And those can be um, got through many of the labs that a lot of the doctors using this biomedical approach use. So that's one of the more common ones. Okay. Now, I know I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but so we've got these these objective laboratory tests and on biomarkers, when measures are taken to improve the profile of these biomarkers from these tests, do the children also have a corresponding clinical improvement, behavioral improvement, health improvement? I'm not aware of any studies in particular that have looked at that, but I know just clinically we've certainly seen children that when we measure these things initially, they're quite high, and over time through various interventions that the numbers will decrease, and consequently as their clinical um, picture will will improve as well. Yeah, I just love it when that happens. So let's look at another um, thing that's going on in the body. Let's look at inflammation. In general, what does inflammation mean? Well, inflammation is basically a response to injury. Um, now, classically, if you get, you know, you fall down, you twist your ankle, you're going to get swelling, you're going to get redness, you're going to get warmth. Those are the classic signs of inflammation in the body. Now, that's a kind of an, an easily observable one, but you can get inflammation anywhere. You can get inflammation in the joints, and then you get things like arthritis. You can get inflammation in the brain. You can get inflammation in the gut. Now, normally, again, inflammation being a response to injury, it's one of your body's kind of reparative processes. But the problem is if that switch doesn't get turned off, and you, then you go into chronic inflammation, that can actually, the inflammatory process can start causing damage. So you see things like where if you get inflammation in a joint chronically, somebody will develop the changes you see with, say, rheumatoid arthritis, where you get a big, swollen, deformed joint. Okay. In autism, how is inflammation involved? Well, we know 
unfortunately from autopsy studies of people who've had autism, that there's evidence of chronic inflammation going on in the brains of uh, the people that had autism. So that's certainly one of the aspects that we see. Um, anybody that has an autistic child with gut issues, you're, you're seeing obvious results of inflammation there when you're seeing this uh, chronic diarrhea that many of the children have. And then if they get scoped or pill cammed, then you can frequently see the evidence of the inflammation throughout their gut through that as well. Okay, so that's another objective laboratory you know, test or diagnostic procedure, which is endoscopy. Is that correct? Endoscopy, colonoscopy, um, something called a pill cam, where you swallow a capsule that takes pictures as it goes through your gut. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about inflammation, and what happens, what kind of damage occurs when cells and tissues are chronically inflamed? Well, chronic inflammation can actually trigger that oxidative stress damage that we talked about earlier. So you can, again, get damage to the cell membranes. You can get damage to your proteins, damage to your DNA. Um, through the you know, gut, you can see obvious things like inflammatory changes like ulcerations, um, you know, swelling in the gut, that kind of stuff. Now let's look at oxygenation. And how does oxygenation help healing or the inverse how does insufficient oxygenation hinder healing? Well, if you're getting poor circulation out to a body part, say, you know, a diabetic person who's got very bad blood flow out to their legs, they'll end up getting these wounds that won't heal out in their legs because their body's not getting enough blood flow out there. Now, what the blood flow is doing, amongst other things, delivering oxygen out to that tissue. Your body needs the oxygen to make sufficient energy to do almost all the functions that it does. If you're not getting that oxygen out to that tissue, you're not going to need to have the metabolic energy necessary to do the healing processes. So by increasing oxygenation out to these tissues, if they're getting insufficient oxygenation, we should be able to increase the, the cell's healing power, make them get back to normal, as it were. Oh, very good. All right, so let's relate this to the topic of today's program. What do we mean when we say hyperbaric oxygen, and what are its therapeutic principles, like basically why it works in a therapeutic way? Hyperbaric oxygen, it just means increased pressure of oxygen. What this is is when somebody goes into um, uh, a room or a chamber that is pressurized with increased pressure of uh, air and oftentimes having an increased pressure of oxygen, what this does is drive extra oxygen into the fluid that's around your blood in the serum. Your blood cells are basically 100% packed with oxygen by the time they leave your lungs. What we can do with hyperbaric oxygen is actually get more oxygen into that fluid that's around your blood cells. By doing that, it's going to help get to where sometimes where the blood cells can't get. We're going to diffuse extra oxygen out into the tissues where it's not normally getting. So if you're having a problem where cells did not have enough oxygen flow, then you can get extra oxygen to them even if there's blockage of some of the blood flow out to that area. Okay. And we've talked about some bodily processes that have gone awry. We've talked about oxidative stress. We've talked about inflammation and trauma. What's the difference between the way oxygen operates in the body normally and the way it works in hyperbaric? Why isn't the normal movement of oxygen adequate in a trauma situation? Well, say if you had trauma or you had a damage of the blood flow going out to a certain area, then you're not going to be getting the red blood cells getting out to that tissue where it's supposed to get. The oxygen's not going to be able to diffuse into those areas. By hyperbaric, since we're diffusing extra oxygen actually into the fluid, that's going to be able to pass into areas where there's not normally the red blood cells can't get to. Also, you're going to have an increased pressure of that oxygen in that fluid, so it's going to be an increased gradient for that oxygen to flow into areas where it wouldn't normally be getting to. 
All right, very good. I think that this is a good point to take a break, and we want to thank our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Kyle Van Dyke. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Kyle Van Dyke, and we're talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, Dr. Van Dyke, before the break, I think you were alluding to, you know, where hyperbaric oxygen therapy delivers oxygen and how it does it. Do you have anything to add to what it does to the cells and tissues that helps with the tissue recovery or stops additional damage? Yeah, one one very interesting thing that's kind of come up recently is that besides just getting that extra oxygen out to the tissues, frequently what can happen after somebody's had either an inflammation or injury is that they can have damage to the cells and particularly damage to the mitochondria of the cells where they're not functioning normally anymore. One of the fascinating things that we're seeing with hyperbarics is that there's some studies now showing that with the hyperbaric oxygen out to those tissues, it can actually start restoring some normal mitochondrial function and and improving mitochondrial function in the cells. And we know mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the big topics in autism these days as well. Right. Very cool. So it sounds like there can be um, secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, like not mitochondrial dysfunction that you were born with, but mitochondrial dysfunction that you acquired? Is that the case? Exactly. We know from, you know, some classic cases like, you know, the Hannah Pauling case where a child had the vaccines and then developed a mitochondrial disease after the environmental insult. Um, mitochondrial disease, mitochondrial diseases, mitochondrial dysfunction is really a science in its infancy right now. It's only been out for 10, 20 years at this point that people are talking about it at all. So we're really learning some fascinating stuff with this, and uh, I think it's going to be a big part in the autism picture. And we talked about oxidative stress earlier in the program. Is oxidative stress something that can cause uh, mitochondrial dysfunction? Is that related somehow? Well, actually, mitochondrial dysfunction is probably the primary cause of oxidative stress in the body. 
what oxidative stress at its most basic level is, is these free radicals, and they're coming from electrons leaking out of the mitochondria. So dysfunctional mitochondria causes increased oxidative stress and causes the vast majority of oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, is there a precedent um, for the use of hyperbaric oxygen? What other diagnoses has hyperbaric oxygen therapy helped? Well, again, classically it's been used for things like diabetic wounds, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, these things, those are kind of the on-label uses for it. But there's other things that it's been used for with good results too, such things like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, you know, things that are starting to have more of a similar picture to autism in terms of uh, chronic inflammation processes. Okay, and this is decades, isn't it? Decades and decades and decades of use? It has for long periods of time. It's been used for um, diabetes, um, you know, for the bends, that kind of thing. So it has been used for quite some period of medicine, but just not nearly um, as many things as, as we think it's probably helpful for. You know, Dr. Van Dyke, what, what I think sometimes is so interesting, kind of in a galling way, um, it's that there are interventions that have been out there for decades and decades and decades, like um, hyperbaric oxygen or like chelation, and they've been used for things that have been named with other diagnoses, but, but when you talk about it with autism, People, you know, act skeptical or, you know, say it hasn't uh, been studied or there's not this and that published peer review literature. But the thing of it is, that's why it's so important to define autism correctly. Like, autism is a diagnostic label, but what we really need to look at it as is uh, that set of underlying physiological conditions do you get what I'm getting at here? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. I mean, back in the days when you thought autism was, you know, primarily a psych- psychological disorder of, you know, bad parenting, obviously not d- doing medical interventions wouldn't be effective for something if you thought that it was purely from a psychological basis. But now when we start looking at some of these, looking at it as a systemic disorder and then, you know, looking at things, well, what can cause a problem both in the brain and the gut and the immune system? What can cause, if we're looking at fundamental medical processes now in terms of, oxidative stress, inflammation, and these are things now that we're starting to see as a root problem in not just autism, but now also other things, coronary artery disease, a variety of different things. Um, So it's looking more for these root causes and then seeing, well, what therapies are out there that address these root causes and then, you know, will that be effective against this specific disease? Now, in particular, I'm interested in autism. So what diseases have anti-inflammatory, what therapeutic options have anti-inflammatory effects? what things can decrease oxidative stress, and then can these things be useful for autism? I think, yes, it's a problem of the definition of it just being thought of in a psychological kind of terms, but then looking for that root causes um, is going to be what really helps us get these kids better. Wonderful. So insofar as the rationale for using hyperbaric oxygen treatment for autism, uh, we're kind of putting aside that autism label and we're saying we're using the hyperbaric oxygen therapy for physiological conditions that kids who just happen to have that label of autism have, like the mitochondrial issues or oxidative stress or inflammation. Is that right? Sure, and I think initially the reason people started doing it was because they were doing, you know, PET scans, spec scans that would show the perfusion out in the brain, and they were seeing that kids with autism had decreased perfusion going out to certain areas of the brain. And so one of the obvious things you'd think of if you want to increase perfusion out to certain areas of the brain, what can you do? Well, hyperbarics is certainly one of the things that can do that. 
So that was one of the initial things that people started doing it for. But then when we started to recognize that actually I, I, uh, autism has a chronic inflammatory component to it, then we started looking at, well, there's studies that show hyperbarics has an anti-inflammatory effect. So that would be another good reason as to why it could be working. And now the more recent studies showing that, hyper, that autism has a mitochondrial dysfunction component to it, and now we're starting to see that hyperbarics can actually have positive effects on the mitochondria. So I think there's multiple rationales now as to why this may be an effective mechanism for, for autism. I'm so glad that you've brought these things up, Dr. Van Dyke. So when we look at the body of literature, you actually end up finding out that there's a ton of literature out there that lends credence to the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy or, you know, some other selected interventions out there for kids with a diagnostic label of autism because this vast body of published peer-reviewed literature is addressing underlying physiological mechanisms that are happening in kids who just so happen to also have that diagnostic label of autism. Um, you brought up SPECT scan. I want to look at that a little bit more. Can you explain to our listeners what SPECT scan is and what, and in more in detail what those uh, studies showed? Sure. There's the SPECT scans and PET scans. These are scans where you're injected with a radioactive um, uh, uh, isotope. And this gets where the blood goes, this stuff goes. And oftentimes it will be labeled molecule like glucose that'll go up in the brain so as the glucose is being used in the brain then they have scan a scanning mechanism around the brain that can tell where this stuff has been taken up where this stuff has gone to so if you're getting good blood flow to certain areas it's going to light up on these scans if you're getting poor blood flow out to these areas it's not going to be lit up so well so the initial scans of some of the children with autism are showing decreased perfusion out to certain areas of the brain and then when they do hyperbarics afterwards, they could show actual documentation that you're having increased perfusion out to those areas that were previously had decreased perfusion. Okay. And then um, aside from spec scan and getting back to hyperbaric oxygen in general, tell us about a little bit more of the research that's out there in general. Well, I think the most uh, definitive papers have been done by Dr. Dan Rosignol. Um, he's done uh, several papers on hyperbarics and autism. The most recent being in 2009 where he had, a, I think, a very definitive paper that was a, was a, a double-blinded, which means that people don't know if they're getting the treatment versus getting a sham treatment. And it was a, a controlled study where some people were treated with hyperbarics, some people were treated with a sham hyperbaric treatment where they just pressurized the chamber to just barely enough that you could tell that something was different, but not so much that we think that would be causing uh, change. Now, with this study, they actually looked at the kids, you know, and they had a large number of kids. It was calculated that to be how many they would need to show if there's an actual difference between hyperbaric treatment and sham treatment. And his study did show improvements in multiple measures, um, overall cognitive benefits, speech, um, and it was statistically significant. So this is kind of one of your gold standard uh, medical studies, a double-blind uh, controlled study showing improvement with hyperbarics and autism. And okay, and I... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, that's available online for anybody who wants to see it. If you just uh, Google Dr. Rosignol, and it's in BMC Pediatrics from 2009, and that's available to the public. Okay. And I know that uh, uh, he's also been involved in doing a, a literature review, and so there's some really good information out there that's been published. Um, I know we're going to talk about some success stories later on um, with um, some actual you know, kids who have really improved and improved their quality of life. Um, but uh, first, let's talk about mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy and what benefits have been reported. Sure. 
when most people think of hyperbarics, if you're in the medicine world, usually it's these big chambers that you've seen in a hospital setting. Now, typically those are going to pretty high pressures. Um, we live at one atmosphere of pressure, and those chambers will go to twice that, so two atmospheres or three atmospheres of pressure. So that's going to be some pretty significant pressure, and that's what it's been used a lot in the past for. Now, that's very expensive. It can be, um, you know, it has to be very closely watched. But what we've discovered is that there's, if you use less pressure, like one and a half atmospheres or 1.3 atmospheres, that this, which previously thought would thought to be a placebo, was actually having effect on people. Um, so mild hyperbarics is when you're using these lower pressures, 1.3 atmospheres, 1.5 atmospheres, sometimes with just room air, ox, um, oxygen 21%, sometimes with higher percentages, up to 100%. So mild hyperbaric therapy is using this lower pressure of hyperbarics than what's traditionally been used. Okay, and then what do we mean when we're talking about high-pressure hyperbaric? Does that just mean a hard chamber? or? Well, it has to be a hard chamber to get those kind of pressures, but most of uh, these uh, chambers, again, we're going to be talking two to three atmospheres of pressure, which is significantly higher than what the vast majority of people use. I don't know anybody that's using those kind of pressures for autism because there's a, a difference. When you start getting above two atmospheres, hyperbarics can actually cause increased oxidative stress. So I think it's one of these things where too much is not necessarily a better thing. That Too much is probably not going to be helpful for autism. That 1 to 3, 1.5, we've seen lots of kids that have done well with that, even 1.75. But when you start getting up in that two atmospheres and above, I don't think it's something that's um, useful for autism in my experience. Okay. And we will talk more about the difference between mild pressure and high pressure after we come back from break with Dr. Kyle Van Dyke at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. 
welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Kyle Van Dyke and we're talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy and its usefulness for the kids who are, have the diagnostic label of autism. And we were talking about mild pressure, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and high pressure. Are those used in different circumstances, Dr. Van Dyke? Yeah, typically the high pressure hyperbaric oxygen therapy, that's again going to be what most physicians are familiar with, and that's the chambers in the hospital setting that are used for treating things like the bends that people get from scuba diving, poorly healing wounds that people get from diabetes, um, uh, oftentimes wounds that aren't healing due to radiation therapy. So those are things that frequently high pressure hyperbarics is used for. Okay. And you've talked about these different conditions. Which conditions are treated in a, in a hospital or a clinic? Is there a difference between using HBOT, which is the acronym for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, in a clinic and HBOT at home? Well, certainly using it, um, you know, in a, in a hospital setting, first of all, it's extremely expensive. We're talking about $1,500 an hour for treatment. So that's one reason why probably that was not pursued very much for people. Using it in a home setting or a clinic setting, it's usually you know, a fraction of the cost of that, so it's, it's much cheaper to do the therapy in that way. What we do in a clinic setting is typically use 1.5 atmospheres of pressure, um, and if, if the clinic has the facility to do it, you can use 100% oxygen, and that's just something that has to be done with a very experienced staff and, uh, you know, obviously it's people that know what they're doing. Um, in a home setting, people can use chambers that are, go up to 1.3 atmospheres, um, which are the, frequently the soft chambers that people will hear about. And these were actually the uh, kind of chambers that were used in the study that Dr. Rosnell did that did show the uh, statistically significant improvement in the ch- children using these soft chambers that go to 1.3 atmospheres. And it's really important uh, to use the chambers at home in the way for which they were manufactured and indicated. Yeah, it is a medical device, so you need a prescription to get one. Um, you really need to talk to a doctor about how to properly do it. Hyperbarics is a very, very safe therapy. If you if you know what you're doing and you're uh, taking the care to do it, the most common thing we can see is you know people get some problems with their ears. So if people aren't, if, you know, it's just like if you go up in a plane and you have a cold. If you can't clear your ears, you can hurt your eardrum. So same thing with hyperbaric. So it's the kind of thing you want to be talking to a doctor about before you do it because there's think, ways that you can get around that or what, things that you should know when somebody shouldn't treat and when they should treat. Um, again, other things, there's very few reasons why people can't do hyperbarics, particularly one that I always want to make sure is that people don't have any significant history of any bad lung disease. Now, this wouldn't be just your kind of mild asthma or anything like that, but if somebody had had a history of some severe lung scarring or something like that, then you could potentially have some bad side effects from it. So that's, again, another reason why you'd want to be talking with a doctor before you were to engage in a therapy like this. So what kinds of medical consults, prescriptions, and lab tests should be done along the way? I know with our kiddos, we're, um, you know, having regular medical consults um, and lab tests and medical monitoring as appropriate along the way anyway. But with hyperbaric oxygen therapy in particular, what kinds of consults, prescriptions, and lab tests need to be in place? Well, I think most people in the biomedical world are going to be somewhat familiar with uh, autism and hyperbarics at this point. Um, but you'd certainly want to, again, you'd need a prescription from a doctor to get a chamber, so you'd want to talk to somebody who has some familiarity with hyperbarics. So you can get a feel for... what to expect with the treatment, what kind of things to be looking out for, and just to obviously make sure somebody's medically cleared to be able to do that kind of therapy. 
Um, in terms of lab tests, uh, we talked about you know scans and stuff like that. That's something certainly that the vast majority of people do not do at this point because it's a very expensive kind of thing. Um, I have a tendency where I, I don't necessarily get, get any extra labs on somebody just because they're doing hyperbarics versus uh, you know doing any other kind of regular biomedical treatments. But other docs, again, will do things differently. But uh, there's not anything particular test-wise that you would have to do uh, in terms of blood draws or anything like that before somebody would do hyperbarics. Okay. Now, there are differences of opinion on this, but from your body of experience, is hyperbaric best done before, after, or in conjunction with other biomedical or educational therapies, or does it vary from child to child? Well, I, I would think certainly before somebody would do something like hyperbarics that you would have tried, you know, diet, um, you know, methyl B12, these kind of things, just because they're very simple to do, they're, they, they've been used for a long time, they're very inexpensive, and, you know, I've seen some kids that that's all it took to make them better. Now, obviously, those are rare children, but if you got somebody like that, that would be fantastic. So I wouldn't want somebody to jump into something that's, you know, a rather expensive and time-consuming therapy before they've started to get into some of the more basic stuff first. I've, I, so the vast majority of children that I end up seeing coming to clinic that want to do hyperbarics, again, have already been doing this stuff or, or starting this stuff before they start to do hyperbarics. It's pretty unusual that you see somebody that that's going to be the first thing that they do without trying anything else in the biomedical world. Um, I don't have any personal experience with them, but I've heard some people say that the kids that have been doing the biomedical stuff beforehand have a tendency to do better in the chambers than the kids who just kind of do that straight off the bat and aren't doing any other kind of uh, biomedical therapy. And can you tell us again about the different types of chambers and um, give us a little bit more insight about safety measures with the equipment? Sure. Um, in a clinic setting, frequently we'll have hard chambers, um, and those can go up to higher pressures, but typically, again, we don't use them more than 1.5 atmospheres. Um, and if you have the proper uh, facilities for it, we can use 100% oxygen on the kids with appropriate safety measures so that there's no concerns regarding that. Now, in a home setting, obviously you don't want to be using 100% oxygen just because that's going to be a fire hazard. Um, you can use these soft chambers, which go to 1.3 atmospheres, um, and that's something that you can use an oxygen concentrator with, which will increase your oxygenation a little bit, but not up to 100%. But that's typically what most people will do, and that's what was used in the studies um, you know, by Dr. Rosnall, is using these 1.3 atmosphere chambers with a little bit of extra added oxygen uh, put into the chamber. Okay, that's good to know. So now can you please share some of the success stories with us? I know that I've recently um, spoken to people who've consulted with you whose kids are doing marvelously. Yeah, we've had uh, so many kids that have done so well over the years. Um, you know, Starting with my own was the, my first experience with hyperbarics. But, but other children that I've seen, you know, it's kind of the typical thing that we'll see will be a child comes in, has done some biomedical stuff, but they're kind of either plateaued or they're just looking for that next step. So we'll have stuff where I've had a child, I believe he's six years old at the time, he came in, he'd been doing biomedical things, he'd been making good advances, but still, just, you know, he wouldn't talk to his mother. And this was really unusual because they came in and after their first treatment out in the waiting room afterwards, he started having a spontaneous conversation with his mother. And wow. And she never had that before. And I... I hesitate to tell people that because hyperbarics typically receive the advances after somebody's done 20 to 40 treatments, somewhere in that range. Um, but occasionally we get, I don't want everybody to think they're going to do one treatment and the kid's going to start to talk, but I, occasionally I do see something like that and that's always, you know, blows my mind when I see it. It's fantastic. 
and uh, the kid did really well when he did a full round of treatment. But that was one child that did very, very well. Um, I had another child that one thing I remember was that the parents were, would complain that the child just spoke in that robot monotone voice all the time, and they, he had no inflection to his voice. He wouldn't play with his brother. And after they did their hyperbarics, the child started talking with the normal up and downs in his voice and actually started singing. Um, and actually, and his brother was all excited because now his, he would play, his brother would play with him now where he wouldn't play with him at all before. So you see fascinating increases in social interaction like that and speech. Another fascinating case that I had, I was a patient who had um, been doing biomedical stuff, was doing pretty well, um, and went in and got an update on their immunizations. And almost immediately afterwards, the mother noticed that the child started to lose all the gains that they'd acquired over the past year doing the hyperbarics. And actually, the child started to exhibit some uh, symptoms of some absence-type seizures. Um, so it was very, very scary. And she called me, and we said, well, let's bring him in, and we'll put him in the chamber and see what happens. And meanwhile, he was had, a, had an appointment pending to see the neurologist and stuff to get evaluated for these new findings as well. But in just that, he went in the chamber once a day for a week, and everything went back to normal, went back to the way it was before. So that was really interesting because we saw a kid that was in an active kind of new regression and we were able to get that kid back to where he was before, which was really, really great. Wow, it's really wonderful, the, the power and efficacy of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I know that um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been life-saving in cases with mitochondrial issues and failure to thrive. Yeah, these are some of the most fascinating kids we have um, that we've had uh, several children of come through the clinic that have diagnosed mitochondrial diseases. And now these are much more serious than your just mitochondrial dysfunction. These are kids that are severely developmentally delayed and have really life-threatening uh, problems. You know, some of them were just in the hospital for their basically their entire lives before they started to do hyperbaric therapy. Uh, you know, one child in particular, you know, was had what's called cortical blindness, which means you can't see it all, um, you know, couldn't walk, was took completely bedbound, having, you know, seizures nonstop all day long, started doing hyperbarics and got to the point where her vision completely recovered um, after doing hyperbarics for a longer period of time, was actually able to get up and start walking. Um, so just things that had never been seen before with a child with that diagnosis. I've had some other families that have... Um, one child who, again, had a real serious mitochondrial disease was having hundreds of seizures a day, and after the second hyperbaric therapy, um, basically stopped having all clinical seizures, which was fantastic. Um, other children who've had mitochondrial dis- disorders and, and had um, other things going on with it, this is part of that systemic presentation where one child had uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a condition basically where you're just almost vomiting nonstop. You can't keep any food down. Um, this was thought related to the mitochondrial disease that the child had. They started doing hyperbarics, and after a couple of treatments, the child started eating nonstop. And this was somebody they wanted to put a G-tube in to be able to feed them, but then just started to be able to eat on her own. And she got to the point where she was just doing phenomenally well. This is, this is really, it just gives you goosebumps. This is really so heartwarming, and I appreciate your sharing those stories with us. Uh, we're going to, to end close soon, but can you just tell us about what happened with your own son? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I was um, approached by a, a Dr. Rosnall when he was doing a study on hyperbarics, and he wanted to um, see if my child wanted to be in, in part of the study, and it initially didn't make sense to me to do hyperbarics um, at that time. This is back, you know, seven years ago now. And he he can kind of showed me the evidence for it, and so we tried it. And my son at the time was severely autistic. He was completely nonverbal. Um, you know, he'd only recently started to actually walk. 
and he had horrendous gastrointestinal disease, um, he had terrible, terrible diarrhea. And he, st- by the end of his 40 treatments, he had started to say his first words. He had had his first normal bowel movement of his life, um, and his physical strength had just started to improve. And so we were just blown away by the results, and that's what got me into it. Oh, wow. That is so wonderful to hear. Where can listeners look for more information about this? Well, they can certainly um, look at our website, wisconsinhyperbarics.com, and they can learn more about it there. There's uh, the International Hyperbarics Association. Um, you can go online and look at the Autism One website, and there'll be um, various lectures that people have done on hyperbarics that people could get. And I know the Autism Science Digest recently had some articles on hyperbarics as well. Well, Dr. Van Dyke, I'd like to thank you for sharing this very hopeful information about this intervention that's helping so many children. And thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about it. Oh, thank you. To our listeners, my guest next week is Dr. Thomas Barodi, founder and medical director of the Center for Digestive Diseases in Sydney, Australia, on the topic of fecal bacteriotherapy. Don't forget to visit the National Autism Association's conference website at www.nationalautismconference.org to learn about their upcoming conference in relaxing, sunny Tampa St. Pete. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.